From WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University, I'm Byron Williams, and this is The Public Morality. Today on The Public Morality, our focus is exclusively on the water crisis in Flint, Michigan. We'll begin by speaking with Minister Leslie Watson Malachi, director of the People for the American Way's African American Ministers in Action. And after that, we'll speak with writer, author, and founder of Sojourner Magazine, the Reverend Jim Wallace, coming up on The Public Morality. Regardless of your politics, the water crisis in Flint, Michigan, is unacceptable by any standard known to America. The mere thought that such degrading circumstances could exist should be abhorrent to the collective soul. Joining me to discuss the crisis in Flint, Michigan, is Minister Leslie Watson Malachi. She is Director of African American Religious Affairs at People for the American Way in Washington, D.C., and is on the ground in Flint, Michigan, as we speak. Let's begin, um, though the Flint water crisis is obviously a, a moral crisis publicly. I also know that it happens to be personal for you. Is, is that correct? Yes, it is. I grew up in Flint, Michigan, um, went to elementary school, high school. My parents are here. Um, I have three brothers with their families, so I have nieces, nephews, and great nieces and nephews that are here. Um, it's a place that I visit at least three times a year. And um, so it is personal for me. I have a mother who is a colon fourth stage four colon cancer survivor, and um, I want to make sure that, uh, and it, as selfish as it as the intent was initially, um, to make sure that she's getting the proper care and everything as well with her. I definitely have a concern about the community itself because I still have lots of friends um, whom I am con- connected with, you know, because again, I grew up here. And I know what this city was like, and I see what it is today. Well, well just sort of um, on that on, on that note, um, you said you knew what the city was like. If you can, just take a moment, uh, sort of walk us through, if you if you wouldn't mind, the Flint that you knew versus the Flint today. Wow, um, it was an amazing city. It was a thriving city. It was a city that had an energy um, that gave that was just full of life. I remember uh, growing up and, you know, you had uh, three shifts here. You had first shift, second shift, and third shift. And those shifts um, of the auto plant really kind of determined the flow of the community of whose dad or mother was going to be around and available at what time. You would see people coming and going on the weekends. We would, um, you know, get go to the lake uh, and and be in the water. The the stores were opened. You walked in the streets. Um, the the issue of violence was not as prevalent as, I mean, I don't even remember um, thinking about at that time, uh, gun violence um, or uh, um, just not being able to go and, and enjoy yourself someplace, uh, set out in your front yard. Uh, I used to walk probably about three miles from my mom's house to school and passing neighborhoods, people in their yards, caring for their yards. Uh, it was, it was, it was, it may have seemed simple uh, for others. And at that time, it, it was very simple. It was the way of life then. But, you know, when I look back now again, and I see, you know, the houses along that route that I took to go to school um, five days a week, 
most of those houses uh, have been torn down or, or they're falling apart or they've been completely removed. Um, it's a sense of, of darkness uh, that's, that, that can, if you allow it, that can consume you. Um, not that I want people to know that um, even though that was the auto plant and the time that I grew up was um, the strength of Flint as I knew it then and the people at that time, um, that those there are still some of those people that are still here um, who decided not to leave and doing their small part um, to make sure that that uh, their little light is shining in this city. So it was a it was just it was um, it almost felt magical, um, Byron, at that time to grow up. Not that everything was perfect, um, but it definitely is not uh, the Flint that my that my nieces and nephews are growing up in today. Mm-hmm. You know, when you you were talking, I was I was thinking about uh, Michael Moore's movie uh, Roger and Me, and which mm-hmm. which sort of outlined Flint. It started that was probably the first indication we had nationally that the economic trajectory of Flint was headed in a different direction from the time that you just articulated. Right. But but. Well, go ahead if you want. If you want. To. No, I I used to when that movie came out. I you know, and people would say, "Well, um, didn't you grow up in Flint?" And I'd say, "Yes." They well, uh, "What do you think of Roger and Me?" And I said, "I lived Roger and Me." So there wasn't, you know, that was a part of because again, while I didn't live here, I continued to come and visit uh, my parents and my family, and just saw the the whole economic and cultural impact that it had on them, but also on on their friends, also on our on our church community. And so uh yes, it did bring some national attention and like most things, it was something that was there and sexy for a while and for the on the national level, um, it ended up going away. But Roger and me still was the daily life for people here in, in this city. Mm-hmm. Uh before we delve into the actual politics of, of this issue, I, I want you to look through your ministerial lens. And capture for us, if you will, the moral implications of this water crisis in Flint. Well, you know, Byron, I have um, a different kind of way of looking at this. Okay. And I am looking at this from a Genesis 50-20 lens. And Genesis 50-20 says, what man intended for harm, God intends for good. Mm-hmm. And at this time, while we know that it is, uh, it's a time of great discouragement, great frustration, there's anger, um, there's a sense of confusion, there definitely is, uh, you know, you're, you're, who's, who is more valued, um, those that are low income, those that are lower income, those are unemployed, those are underemployed, um, the students of the city, you see all of that that's going on as, you know, that's part of the, the atmosphere that that gives a part to the atmosphere but when this came about and uh, my mother (laughs) my mother is one of those people who still enjoys the paper paper so she gets her flint journal and she knows she reads it from cover to cover and she had been keeping me aware for really for three years of what had been happening as things were progressing. And then as it got, it became worse. And all along, my thinking had been and knowing that there were people who were doing things that they could. But again, um, when we get to the conversation about the political side, because you can't separate the two, um, it it is very strategic. It's very um, it's 
It is a tactic that we see that's used in other places around the country. It is, it's even something that has been used in the world. But what what you had was, um, again, people who came forth, and and I don't know whether it was always intentional, but they ended up becoming players of further uh, of participating in the further um, hurt and harm of the city of Flint. And by doing that, um, again, I, I, my spirit moved toward, the spirit guided me toward Genesis 50-20, what they intended for harm, God intends for good, because now the good is the revitalization, the revival of the city of Flint that so many people are now talking about, and which moves us to uh, New Testament scripture, if you will, that we will become Romans 8.28 witnesses, that all things work together for good for those who love the Lord and who are called. And so um, while we definitely can say that, you know, we have had the wilderness experience here, we've had Pharaoh with his foot in our neck and, and have been telling, um, especially the African-American people, which make up the majority of this city, to make bricks without straw. They don't have jobs, and so they, how are they going to keep the the utilities on? How are they going to pay for the water? How are they going to make sure that they can eat and their children eat um, when there's so little, when the resources are scarce and they're fighting over the resources? But it's going to turn out for, for our good because it is a moral issue that has an impact on the morality of, of the, the, city, the citizens here, voters and non-voters. But we're going to make this thing work to our good. Talking with uh, Minister Leslie Watson Malachi, I, f- I feel I need to take a break and just uh, do an offering right now. That was good. But, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, you know, I know you, you wrote about this, so, let, so let's delve into some of the little politics. You wrote about this recently in the Huffington Post. And let's discuss sort of the precursor, which were these austerity policies that were adopted to address, this, to address Flint's economic uh, problems. Yeah, the, the uh, public... Public acts, uh, you know, when you trace the timeline of when this all started and, you know, people look at, you know, we now have the city of Flint, the state rather, has a Republican governor. But a lot of this stuff, you have to look, it's not, it is um It is partisan politics at play, but some of it did start under a Democratic administration. But the the weight of it is what we're feeling right now under a current administration. The politics um, of what we know in those public acts that that go, uh, you know, they go as far back as 1988 when they were first introduced. But in recent times, those public acts in 2011 and 2012 um, is it's what has has turned things to uh, what you see today public act that extended the power of the governor um, to make assignments and appointments um, for for the public good is what initially you know you think that this that these kinds of things are at least on the outside uh, but we always have to be concerned when when absolute power is given to someone and there's no checks and balance that's there. Um, the, it, 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 um, in 2011, you had what was called the Local Government and School District Fiscal Accountability Act. And it was at that time when you started to see um, an expansion of the power of the governor in, in looking at cities determining whether there was a so-called probable financial stress that the city would not be able to get out on its own and that it would require these um, 
uh, emergency managers to come in. Now, I lived in Washington, D.C. for 25 years, and during that time there, we were under what was called a control board, basically the same as the emergency manager, where you had non-elected individuals who were responsible for making uh, day-to-day financial well-being um, efforts for the for the residents of the city, and often without consulting with the those individuals that were elected. So we started with the public with the public acts, and then the public acts in uh, four. We've got now we're looking at the impact of public act number number four thirty six, which is on. You know, in 2012, that became a part of of what uh, one writer in Mother Jones noted as a hostile uh, a hostile takeover of Flint. Um, it was about usurping local government, uh, breaking down unions, and um, and again making it so that people not only felt uh, disenfranchised, but they just felt disconnected and and not in a place of the majority that I'm aware of. Let me say it like that: not in a place of being able to care for or manage their own daily lives. They were looking to others to make those decisions for them, uh, and that set of a really bad precedent. Well, the, the irony in, in, in your uh, last remarks is the fact that now the Environmental Protection Agency is, you know, trying to take over the water testing in Flint, and uh, Governor uh, Rick Snyder uh, is balking against that. that. That's sort of ironic because what they're doing to, what they did to local municipality, the federal government is now doing to the state, and now the state is balking. How, <laughs> how do you account for that? Or can you account it, for that? Well, it, you know, again, I, I believe that it was, an, it was necessary. I believe that, that there was the cry from the, from the community, just like back in the 60s, there was an attention that was given to the war on poverty until you saw President Johnson hold up the, the child from um, West Virginia, and that became the face of poverty. Mm-hmm. It wasn't until you saw the ch- a child in Flint on the front paper with, with the rash, and all of a sudden, it, that, that, that baby, that rash became the face of Flint and the water crisis that's here. I do, I personally believe, and you are correct, uh, you've had the, the, gov- the state government that has come along and, and usurped the power from the local government, and now we have the federal agencies. But the federal agencies, uh, in my recollection, were invited in. Um, to come in because a, a a state of emergency had been declared. There was a thought for federal funds and assistance, um, and there so there was an invitation for the federal government to come in. There was not that invitation for an emergency manager to come in and to cause the kinds of dis- disruption for the citizens. Um, do I believe that EPA needs to be here? I do. I believe that they that they're late coming. I mean, we do know that the I think he was the state or region. EPA director uh, uh, had resigned from his resign. I think it was resigned and not terminated from his position um, uh, because there were again things that that obviously went past him that he did not take notice of in the you know that really started back in the uh, in the process where it was determined that they would sever that the city of Flint would sever its relationship with. Um, Detroit uh, water powers, and at that time, the uh, the person who was the EM uh, it stated it was stated as saying that he came into this 
and but she that the governor had uh, was the one that sanctioned it, and so he just moved forward with making sure that it was implemented. So the, you've got the governor playing the role um, of of heading again this municipality and others in the state as well. And then again, you've, we've got FEMA here, we've got EPA here. Um, you're going to end up with HUD being in here. Um, if they're not already, you do even have um, um, national security that's in here. All of those federal elements are now here in place, but they were invited. When you ask for the funding assistance that that is coming down, they were invited to come in and they are going to be a part of, for lack of a better term, kind of the oversight of the next steps of how do we move Flint from where it is to where it needs to be so that that no longer we see children who have rashes or have questions about whether or not you can bathe or shower in the water, but that the citizens in Flint um, know for certain um, with that blessed assurance, if you will, that that everything is being taken care of and taken care of to their uh, with their best interests at heart, not about profit, but about people. You know, earlier in the interview, you, you mentioned that um, just how intertwined the morale and the politics are on on, on an issue such as this, and um, I think that that's really amplified by by a statement you alluded to in that um, wonderful Huffington Post piece. Where, where I think you said that the fiscal responsibility was valued more than health. Mm-hmm. What did you mean by that? Well, at the time, city uh, there are cities around the country, but at the time, Flint was going through um, again. The auto plants have closed down. That you don't have the industry that it once um, that once. Uh, fueled the city, that fed the city, that provided for the city. And so you've got individuals who either were employees of the the auto plant who had a skill set that is no longer needed or required, and you have a new generation that, that came up on the edge of that um, and did not, weren't able to find exactly where their place is in terms of contributing to the well-being of the city. And so the those elected officials, those elected and appointed officials started to view and look at cutbacks that needed to be made so that uh, so that the books could be balanced, if you will. The books being balanced were more important than making sure that families were getting fed, that they were that there was heat into in the winter, that there again was good flowing water, that the basic needs were were um, that the basic needs of individuals here were the priority. It was that we need to look good on the books. And we see this thing, you know, I know that every all of your listeners have seen this play out in their own states, and they've, they've seen it played out um, even within the federal government. But when I look at when I think about fiscal, the fiscal responsibility and, and the, the fiscal crisis that we hear, and then I take a look at the state budget and I see what has been cut and I see what has been increased, that tells me the value, that tells me the priority of those individuals. And if I don't see that money is going into local government, the improvement, everybody knew that the pipes needed to be improved. Again, it was not new that, the, that we've got you know, um, 100-year-old pipes 
that there was nothing that was put into um, strengthening the infrastructure. There is nothing that came out of any of the, whether it was the House committee or the Senate committee that said, well, we need to, we, we know that, you know, Flint has been using under the contract with Detroit. I think it was it, as far back as the early 70s that the, that that contract for Detroit to bring water into Flint started. And at that time, from then to now, it, to my knowledge, and I would say that to my knowledge, there had not been anything in the state budget that said, let's address this infrastructure problem that we have. Instead, it was, well, they can't pay the bill. Every, so what we've got to do is to is to cut it. Flint entered into a relationship with another water company that was supposed to have water in place and be safe by 2016, by this year. That was two years ago. Um, where they are in that process, I'm just now learning right now. But again, you, you've got the city that entered into um, a multi-million dollar agreement that has an engineering company that's getting paid quite a bit. Um, and you've got people who are standing in the cold um, for a case of water. Where that your priorities, your priority is is it's not for me it's not so much fiscal responsibility as it becomes fiscal irresponsibility because in sit in government management you have to consider the people the day-to-day people who actually support who buy goods who use services those are the people that are not considered in this and that's why um and so there's no value that was given um, to the individuals, to the families, to the sick, to the low income, uh, the unemployed, the underemployed. And that spoke speaks volumes to me. Well, wouldn't you also say that, uh, taking your, your, your last statement about the, uh, for lack of a better word, the least of these, uh, I mean, complaints started, what, as early as two years ago? You had complaints about the water? Right. And and I'm not trying to pit one community against another, but I, I think that reasonable people would find a hard time uh, concluding that you'd have the same timeline, the same outcome if, if a community such as Auburn Hills uh, uh, complained about the water. And so isn't is it a way, so you take what you just said about the austerity and the, and, and the, uh, uh, the least of these, and now that gets us into this long timeline of, of, of inactivity. Right. And the and and again, I'm always careful about that because um, I don't know all of the all of the things that had been taking place, uh, you know. That but I do know that uh, that you are correct. I mean, if this was Auburn Hill, this would never have happened. It would never have been allowed to happen. If someone is going to come in and they're going to manage a city, then you look at the problems of the city. You look at all of them, not just the ones um, that that you not through a narrow lens, but through a broader lens, if you will. And so it actually, what what became the highlight was actually the law, class action lawsuit that was filed in November of last year that opened up the investigation that led to where we are today. Now, in, within the, within in 2015, you did have um, a lot of movement that was going on. You had people who were talking about it, um, but no one was doing anything, but sometime last year, I think it was around the summertime, when Hurley Hospital, the largest in the city, and it's a very well known uh, for its services and what it provides, good hospital, when they changed their water system because they were concerned about the health of their patients, that right there 
should have been an immediate red flag for the the uh, emergency manager, for the mayor, for the city council at that time. If your hospital says that we can't use this water, that even before you had the class action lawsuit, even before you had the picture of the child with the rash, all of that should have been the red flag to say, we need to start moving now. And so what you've got is a timeline from 2014 um, through the end, through really the first of uh, you know January, I think it was January the sixth when the story broke, and now we've got the the governor you know apologizing. Um, but at this time, none of that makes any any difference to people who who don't have any other options. You've got people who now, uh, yes, if they were in Auburn Hills, um, they would not be standing in line for cases of water. Um, if you were in Auburn Hills, you would know for it with absolute certainty that you can still take a shower, that you can still take a bath. You would know with absolute certainty that the concern about lead has to do with ingestion. You would know for certainty some basic questions so that you can go on with your daily life and that it not become a crisis for you, but it becomes an opportunity for engagement. It becomes an opportunity for you not to be angry at non-response, but to be a participant in the response in a very reasonable, rational, responsible way. And so, yes, there all of this um, and, and what has been going on over the last couple of years, um, you know, with the decision, uh, in, you know, in, in 2014 to, to no longer use, to, to, um, use this new system to, and for it to be up and running. And in the meantime, in the interim, you would use Flint water with the city council with them saying there was one vote for one thing and the EM saying, no, the vote was for this and the, and the mayor at that time said all of that confusion. If this were, if this were Auburn Hills, there would not be that kind of confusion. There would be accountability and responsibility for those persons that were in place at the time, especially in the last year when all of this started coming down. And for those listening, Auburn Hills is a affluent community right outside of uh, Detroit. So talking with uh, Minister uh, Leslie Watson-Malachi, you know, one of the pieces that um, I think gets overlooked because the emotion of the issue, and justifiably so, um, is that all, you know, we don't really know the long-term ramifications of this crisis, meaning if children have been uh, overexposed to lead, we don't know what that's going to do health-wise. We don't know what that's going to do education-wise, you know, and how those things do uh, impact the growth of the city for those who are, are, are living in Flint. So we don't really even know what the long-term ramifications are, right? That's correct. And and, and socially, culturally, what's happening right now is um, the first time I heard it, I laughed at it. And then I paused and, you know, and I said, oh, Lord, because young people are going around saying if, if someone is acting out, they drink Flint water. Um, if someone is, if there is, uh, you know, someone has a mental challenge or something, it's now they drink Flint water. That's not, that's not a, that's not a good thing. Um, the, the long-term ramification in terms of the health, uh, no, we don't know what that's going to be like for our children, um, which is the reason why we've got to have systems that are in place from this point on. We can't change what happened yesterday, but we have to press on and go forward. And what can we do for tomorrow? And that is to make sure that 
that the state government does provide the necessary care and the monitoring, especially for the children um, who have been ingesting this water, um, watching their behavior, not making them uh, lab tests or, or, or any experiments or anything, but that there is a compassionate, compassionate care to making sure that they get what they need. Um, but the second thing is, is, Byron, what we have here in terms of long-term ramifications. If we don't do start doing something now, um, and and it is and it is happening. But you know, on uh, Monday or Tuesday, I attended a meeting here in Flint um, by the Flint NAACP, and they have a 15-point plan, um, which is very um, aggressive. But also, it is um, it. it it was a, it's a part of the fresh air that's moving throughout the city. We've got to start dealing with some things um, with the human side, but again, the political side, because there is no separation um, between that. And so when, when you come to learn that the legislation that was used and approved by the Michigan State Legislature um, in 2012, after the general elections took place where, and even though I'm a part of a nonpartisan entity, and that's what I teach and preach and work on, um, it was a Republican-controlled legislature that ended up passing the legislation uh, support, that was supported and promoted by a Republican governor. Why am I bringing this up? Because what we do when we follow the trail and the money, we realize that we have legislation that looks like what's moving around the country, that looks like a part of an organization called ALEC, the American Legislative Exchange Council, which is a, a clearinghouse for pro-business legislation. And it partners with elected officials at the state level. It partners with um, with uh, various uh, conservative groups, if you will. And they put out legislation such as this, uh, where you know members are given a state what's called a state budget reform toolkit. And it becomes less about government involvement. And in the reducing of government involvement, again, the impact is government and there is a an interdependency between government and people. And so when that structure is rattled, then you end up with the question mark. So the long-term implications have to be addressing the attack on democracy in Flint the attack on democracy here in the state of Michigan and elsewhere. Um, and I know that I'm, I'm putting out a lot here, but as you can tell, this is something that um, really speaks to my heart. But I want the long-term ramification to be a part of, of not, we're not uh, off to see the wizard in the land of Oz. We are, we are um, off to see the state legislators in Lansing. We're off to see the governor of the state. We are off to see those persons, whomever we need to, who are a part of the federal agencies that's coming in to get the right responses, to provide the clarity and the assurance that people need to know that right now it's saying that it's going to be, you're looking at something like 10 to 15 years before this these pipes can be cleaned out or before they can be made healthy for, for the residents of Flint. So in the meantime, for, for even for a, for a 10-year strategic plan, what does that look like? We see what the government may be doing. We see what the engineers are going to be doing. What is it that the people are, can be doing? What about the businesses and the, how, that are hurting from this? There, there's a lot of layers to this, but and no, we don't know what the ramifications are, but 
uh, I and others that are here, particularly part of the faith community, we've got a responsibility to make sure that the communication goes out so that it's understood that this is placed in the context of a social justice human rights issue, that we make the connection with uh, the le- with legislation and and membership of groups that don't have the interests of the people at heart. We look at collaborations that, again, that address some of the things that that have that are um, some of the things that that distract us, that distract and divide us. And and we continue to uh, talk and move in a spirit of charity. That I am my brother's keeper. That I do have to be concerned about what's happening. Just because I live in Auburn Hills. Uh, and I've got good water, I still should be concerned about my brothers and sisters who are in Flint, Michigan, who don't have good water. What is it that I can do? Yes, I can bring water. I can send water bottles. But what else can I do? What do I need to do in terms of teaching um, people or re-educating people about environmental justice? So <laughs> there's a there's a lot to be done long term. But the the ramifications again with the multi tiers of everyone that's going to be involved, um, the priority should be the health and well being of the people of Flint, Michigan, for those that are here and those that are yet to be born. Um, you've been in Flint for this week, am I correct? Even been... that's correct. Okay. Uh-huh. What um, what have you learned this week? Good question. Um, I've learned that. Uh, that that there are a lot of unanswered questions that fuel the confusion. I've learned that uh, there are conflicting this conflicting conflicting information that is going forth that again fuels the confusion. Um, I've learned that that you are you're becoming a part of a of a community that's about the have and the have not because you see the stories of the people who uh, who turn down the the free water because they can afford to go buy water and then those that can't afford to go buy water um, feel like they're being looked down um, because they've been placed in a situation that they they had absolutely no control of um, I, I I'm learn you know I've learned that um, that really as we move in this cycle, this election cycle, um, and all of the, all that's going to be taking place in this city, I've learned that we've got to use this issue as one to motivate Flint um, to go to the polls. Flint has had low voter turnout. That is not going to be what needs to happen. That's not going to happen going forward. Everyone is is impacted by this. Um, it, it's learning that that folks really are wanting a way to help, and um, right now there is limited ways that are being offered or being talked about. I love, I love, I love the fact that we've got uh, many of our faith centers here that are part of distribution. But when I learned at some of the other centers that are not the faith institutions, that we've got people who've been coming in um, and we've thought of them as volunteers, but they're actually being paid and they're not a part of the city. And we've got young people here who are looking for something to do, who need something to do and not a part of that process. Um, that is a challenge for me. So I'm learning at all levels about the economic stress, the political stress, you know, the the health stress, the human capital stress, 
um, and the stress on families in all of this. And it's a lot deeper um, than what you see on the paper. But I don't want people to just think that, um, that especially the images of, of African-American people standing in line getting water, that that's all that's going on. Because the other thing that I did learn is that there are a lot of people who are doing some good work. They're operating in their lane, if you will, doing what they can um, to help to soften um, um, this harsh reality. And when, and when we meet people where they are, whether they're going out to protest in front of the city hall, whether they're going to Lansing to advocate uh, for the passage of more funding for Flint, whether they are writing letters or whether they're just praying about it, um, we've got, we do have action that's taking place that's not a part of the national narrative, that's not being seen on television or being reported in, um, in USA Today. And that, um, again, as I said earlier, those learning about those persons who, um, whose light is shining, whose little light is shining in this city um, is very, very encouraging. And encouragement is what we need here in this city, that, that this too shall pass. Minister Leslie Watson Malachi, uh, I want to thank you for not only the for this interview, but but and being on the public morality for just being at that ground level at, at this crisis moment, and and your voice uh, will continue to shine in Flint. And I thank you for the work that you're doing. Thank you so much, Byron. That was Minister Leslie Watson Malachi. Stay tuned as I speak with the Reverend Jim Wallace. As we continue to discuss the water crisis in Flint, Michigan, who better to critique the moral aspect than Reverend Jim Wallace? The writer, author, and founder of Sojourner Magazine has been on the vanguard of political and social influence for several decades. His new book, America's Original Sin, Racism, White Privilege, and the Bridge to a New America, comes at a time when his prophetic voice is needed once again. Jim Wallace, welcome to The Public Morality. Great to be here. I, I want to begin by referring to your piece that recently appeared in the Huffington Post, specifically the title, uh, Racism is the Air We Breathe, the Water We Drink. What, what, what are you saying there? Well, the piece is about Flint and what's happening in Flint, Michigan, right up the road from my hometown of Detroit, where the people, including 8,000 children, were poisoned with uh, lead in their water supply. And so uh, it's a parable because Jesus used parables, stories, so people would learn the right lessons from them. And Flint becomes a parable. I'm speaking to you today from St. Louis and Ferguson, uh, where a parable occurred here and still occurring, and I was with the clergy all morning. What are the lessons they're learning from this parable? So in Flint, you had a story of government officials trying to save water, I mean, save money, trying to save money by allowing the water to be poisoned for all these kids who are mostly poor and black. So it becomes a real parable how racism is in, as I said, the air we breathe and the water we drink. A, a director of a station in Detroit, a, a black uh, radio, radio station, called me last week and was so frustrated by, by her white colleagues who are saying in, in response to Flint, well, I'm, I'm not a racist, am I? It's such a stupid question. You know, it's. Uh, I was in a session last night in uh, a church here, a pastor very involved in Ferguson, and she told me how, told the audience how it's the toxicity, the toxicity 
uh, of the environment we live in. Racism is is like it's like toxin in the air and in the water. So that's what I mean. This is it's it's everywhere. And when political candidates are are really uh, fueling racial fear and hatred, uh, which they are in this election, they're poisoning further poisoning our atmosphere and our environment. You, you know, one of the things that has been my experience when we discuss racism, um, it, it's sort of a hodgepodge. And so, I mean, so many things come to mind. I mean, um, from Bull Connor to to redlining. So when you when you talk about racism in this context, um, how are you defining it? Well, I, I'm on the book tour for this uh, book called America's Original Sin. That's how I define it. Uh, it's subtitled Racism, White Privilege, and the Bridge to a New America. And, you know, uh, we're talking about something that was foundational to us, uh, meaning at the beginning, it wasn't just slavery. It was the kind of the kind of venal slavery that we created to say that we were going to treat Africans as chattel property to create the biggest economic resource in the building of a nation that we had. And to do that, uh, we couldn't justify that, uh, couldn't. That wasn't compatible with our faith. So we said, let's make the slaves less than human. Let's say they're less than human. You get rid of Imago Dei, image of mm-hmm. God, throw it away. And so now we said these slaves are less than human. So the Black Lives Matter movement, which which uh, came out of Ferguson and other places, goes right to the heart of America's original sin, because at the beginning we said foundationally, black lives and black bodies matter less than white lives. That's what we said. So this new movement now is a direct response to the heart of how our original sin still lingers. Brian Stevenson, who wrote the foreword of the book, says slavery never ended, it just evolved. And so mass incarceration right now is just an evolution of of, uh, slavery. So how do we understand white privilege as the legacy of, of uh, white supremacy, and how does that still linger in our criminal justice system, our economic system, our educational system? And that's what the book is about. How to, and repenting in all our traditions, Christian, Islamic, Jew, Jewish, it doesn't mean just being sorry and hanging your head. It means turning around and going in a whole new direction. So that's what I mean by building a bridge uh, to a new America. Talking with Reverend uh, Jim Wallace, uh, author, writer, and uh, founder of Sojourner Magazine, um, how would you then, just given your last response, um, how would you respond to those who say that um, the emergency manager in Flint, uh, Darnell Early, appointed by Governor uh, Rick Snyder, was African-American, he oversaw the deal, so how can this be racist? I'm sure you've heard that before. (laughs) Well, that's like saying... um if uh, if there's a black police officer in a police department and uh, who is involved in or are involved in covering up a shooting of a young black man, that it can't be racist. This is about the, the systems and structures and cultures. The, the, the book talks about both implicit and explicit racism, and and we we suffer both. This original sin still lingers on. We have to call it what it is, and so. Um, you know, we have we have uh, a a, an, a a white structure in Michigan. I'm from Michigan. The political structure in Michigan uh, has been a white political structure. Now, they put emergency managers uh, in charge in places where people were poor and black, and so they were saving money. Uh, whether this man was African American or not, he was he was uh, carrying out the the perspective, the principles of those who say, hey, let's save money on these municipalities where most of the people are poor and black. So uh, that's why we have to see it as in the air we breathe and the water we drink. That's why Flint is so powerful as a parable. Uh, this is in our environment. It's in our history. 
and the turn away from that, turn around from that, requires a very clear change of direction. And one of the things, speaking specifically about Flynn and, and also related to what it seems like the issues that you're raising in your book, I think it's difficult for many to grapple uh, with the fact that you had complaints as early as April 25th, 2014 that have been documented right. about the quality of the water, and it's nearly two years later before it's now seeing some sort of national attention. How can that happen in the 21st century? Well, um, I mean, if we're honest, everyone knows this wouldn't have happened if this was a white suburb of Flint. So it wouldn't have happened in Auburn Hills, for example? No. No, it wouldn't have happened at all. So, and, and like I say in the book, uh, I decided to write the book when Trayvon Martin was shot and killed in Florida. And I looked at my son, Luke, who is about the same age as Trayvon, big six-foot-tall varsity athlete playing college baseball next year. And if we're honest, the whole country knows that if my son, Luke, had been in Sanford, Florida at the same time doing the same things as Trayvon Martin was, we all know he'd come back to me in joy. Luke would have come back to me in joy. Trayvon didn't come back to his parents and isn't going to college next year. And so we have to be honest about uh, how, how, how our lives are still organized around the founding principle that black lives matter less than white lives. It isn't slavery. There were, you know, there were Romans who had Greeks for slaves, and they were tutoring their elite children. They didn't rip their families apart. They didn't say they were less than human. They, were, they just lost a war. That's why they were slaves. Mm-hmm. So we created this whole system because uh, our faith wasn't compatible with what we were about to do. And so now this has really got to be turned around. So I'm talking about what, a, what repentance looks like, what turning looks like. How do you now build a bridge? A new generation, I think, is ready to build a bridge to a new America where we won't be in, in a couple decades. We'll no longer be a white majority nation for the first time in our history. We'll be a majority of minorities. And that's, I think, the new demographic that is changing the nation that many people are still very frightened of. Uh, in your opinion, um, if we digress ever so slightly to politics, in your opinion, is that some of the angst that you see uh, coming specifically uh, uh, from our Republican brothers? Is that some of the angst that you see, some of that fear uh, of those changing demographics you just referred to? Oh, it's the heart. It's at the heart of Donald Trump's success. I mean, Donald Trump is the candidate of white nationalism. I mean, his hat really uh, means not just make America, America great again, it means make America white again. That's really what he's saying. And it's not his charisma, it's not his, um, his uh, strength. It's, it's that he's the candidate of those who are fearful of that new demographic. He, he wants to say he was in the birther movement against Obama. He wants to say Obama isn't one of us. He's other than we are. He's a, a, a Kenyan Muslim. Nothing wrong with being a Kenyan Muslim, but I knew Obama way back when he was in Chicago, and he had an adult Christian conversion, and he was uh, born in, in Hawaii. So there, And when he announced his, his campaign by attacking Mexicans and immigrants, that was in his campaign announcement, and banning all Muslims, well, for him, that's racial, too. And so that the media can't talk about that is quite uh, quite revealing, because that's at the heart of his campaign. And too many Republicans have used that uh, that fear uh, that that um, uh, the normality of whiteness or the white party. The Republicans don't want that. They want a different party. They want a Big Ten party. But they're losing in this campaign. So I think this really is at the heart of uh, the change happening in this nation. And when 75 percent of white Americans don't have any significant black relationships in their social circle. It's not surprising we don't hear each other's stories or listen to them. I'm a Little League baseball coach. I've coached both my boys, and every black player I've ever had has had a dad or a mom uh, give them the talk of how to behave in the presence 
of a white police officer with a gun. And none of my white parents have ever given that talk to their their sons. And and they often don't even know what's going on uh, from the dads uh, and moms of of their son's black teammates. So this is where it has to get personal. We have to care about this personally uh, as white parents caring about what black parents, many of whom we say are our friends, have to tell their kids. That's That can't be acceptable any longer. Mm. Uh, when you said that, I, I just uh, as an African-American male myself, I, I mean, if you just said to another one of my friends, have you given your son the talk? We right. know what the, everybody knows what the talk is. Everybody. Um, how does Flint, specifically the water crisis, Stay on the forefront of public discourse because, as you well know, we we have a really short bandwidth on on issues. Then we move to the next issue. But this is a moral crisis. This is this this goes to, the, in my view, it goes to the heart of who we are as a country. So, how does an issue um, this uh, significant stay in the forefront of the public discourse? Well, as you uh, sadly point out, it may not because that's the nature of our media discourse. It's such a clear, but as you're saying, it's quite, such a clear uh, parable, an example of what's wrong. And these kids, uh, you know, this could be irreparable damage uh, to their own development, their brains, their bodies. And, and who will take responsibility for it? First of all, who will be held accountable? These are, if you can't trust your government officials for things like uh, safety and clean water and air, uh, what's the point? And clearly, uh, government officials, government establishment, those running Michigan, uh, decided that they would do that for uh, white citizens, but, you know, but not these black citizens in, in Flint. Now, that's what happened. That's just what happened. And so who's held accountable for that? And then how do we repair that? Or how do we take responsibility for what this might do to the lives of those young people, which will be over decades now? So um, this is something that is more than just politics. This is about our, this kind of thing is about the soul of the nation. And how do we, how do we reclaim our souls by telling the truth, taking responsibility, and making it. We got to clean up the air and clean up the water when it comes to racism. Well, as you were answering, one of the things occurred to me, which is, um, as you just sort of alluded to, that anything that's done right now, whether it's to clean up the water, clean up, I mean, however that's done, how, you know, however that's adjudicated, the problem is the, 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 the long term impacts right. are, are untold. Right. We don't know what, what, what the. Um, how this is going to affect the aspect of young people's lives, um, educationally, health-wise. I mean, so I mean, this could really uh, have an, a great impact on on the whole society in that in that area. Well, my view is that anyone anyone in the government, right up to the governor's office, who knew about this uh, should be fired and maybe uh, held criminally crim- criminally liable because this is criminal behavior. But beyond that. Who's going to, you know, Isaiah 58 talks about repairing the breach. Um, there's, there was a real breach here. How do you repair that breach? And so that's, that's, that's the long-term question, even beyond holding those officials accountable who are responsible for this. And I think, uh, you know, that's, not, that's something we can't let go away. These impact, the, the impact on these kids isn't going to go away. So, uh, you know, as long as we had this impact on those kids, as long as that lasts, we have to be there alongside those kids and take responsibility for it.
Now that's that's a serious commitment. And if we'd have done the right thing in the beginning, not decided to, that it's okay to, and as you said well, we knew. They knew this was wrong. There were signs of this, and they weren't listened to. Who do we listen to, and who don't we listen to is part of the part of the story here. No, this is um, uh, it, it's, a, it's a unique issue in that um, when you talk about moral issues, that can be subjective. Um, I don't see how anyone... Um, in America, could not say this is this is not what's going on in Flint, Michigan. is not a moral issue. Moreover, uh, it's something that is not going to be with us for six months. This is going to be with us for a generation or two. That's right. That's right. Jim Wallace, I want to thank you so much for being uh, on the public rally today. Well, I'm glad you're bringing uh, morality to public life because uh, that's critically needed. And this book is trying to say, let's talk about the language of sin and repentance when we speak about racism. This isn't just politics. It's about, and for those of us who are people of faith, this is about the gospel, well, whether we believe it or not. Well, see, 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 Jim, what happens when you, when, when you, after I say thank you and you talk after me, you get yourself in trouble. Now, here's the problem. <laughs> the problem is this. Now we've got to have you back to specifically talk about the book. Say you caused that. That's your fault. All right. <laughs> I'll look forward to that. Like, thank you so much. Take care. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. That was Jim Wallace, writer, author, and founder of Sojourner Magazine. Coming up, my closing remarks. Next time on The Public Morality, our focus is on North Carolina, from voter redistricting to the death penalty. What is the political trajectory of the Tar Heel State? That's next time on The Public Morality. As H.L. Mencken opined, for every complex problem, there is an answer that is clear, simple, and wrong. The polluted water in Flint, Michigan, becomes the latest entry in this largely unproductive use of discourse in pursuit of a solution. Flint's water crisis is an epic display of dehumanization that serves as a national embarrassment. Given Flint's demographics, 56% African-American and roughly 44% living in poverty, it becomes predictable that charges of racism, specifically environmental racism, would be levied to understand the genesis of this crisis. What about the 37% of white residents who live in Flint? Are they merely collateral damage? Did they not suffer as well? There is a direct line that links environmental decisions with political power. Those without political clout are invariably at the mercy of those in a position to make such decisions. Driven by the need to save money, it was Flint's emergency manager, Darnell Early, who supported the cost-saving change. Early was appointed by Michigan Governor Rick Snyder and is African-American. Here is where the other side seeks to prove unequivocally that racism was not involved. How can it be racist if an African-American led the cost-cutting measure to switch to a water source, in this case the Flint River, that was essentially a repository for pollutants? This line of thinking also fails because it is looking at the individual and not the system. Politics is an amoral enterprise that is oftentimes more immoral than any individual is moral. It operates in its own interests, which invariably are the interests of those with the most influence. While much of the conversation around Flint centers on race, we might also examine the role rankism plays in this conundrum. Rankism, a term coined by former president of Oberlin College, Dr. Robert Fuller, in his book, Somebodies and Nobodies, is an abusive, discriminatory, or exploitive behavior towards people who have less power.
Rankism underlines many of the social ills of society, such as racism, sexism, and homophobia, but it is also based on an abuse of power inherent to one holding a superior rank in life. It is, in my view, the principal source of human-created indignity. Poverty, lack of political power, and social rank contribute as much, if not more so, than race. Addressing rankism requires far more than the 24-hour issue du jour bandwidth we normally allot for such issues. Rankism makes the ludicrous decisions in Flint possible. It is difficult to believe that a similar process would have been used had the complaint come from a more affluent community. But it didn't come from a more affluent community. It came from Flint, the place where those in power have the luxury of using a subjective process when it comes to affirming one's humanity. Not exactly the path toward a more perfect union. The Public Morality welcomes your comments, questions, and suggestions for upcoming shows. To contact us, you can email at Byron, B-Y-R-O-N, Byron at publicmorality.org. That's Byron at publicmorality.org. That's our show for today. The Public Morality is produced by WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. For all of us at The Public Morality, I'm Byron Williams.